Hey, you're listening to the Broken Record Player Podcast. This is episode 78, still crawling towards 100, but we'll get there eventually. S- sorry for the slower start to the year. Uh, this podcast is a hobby. It's something I've been doing for fun. I really just love talking about music with people. So thank you to everyone who has been patient while I still try to figure out what the hell I'm doing after almost four years. Really appreciate it. Today's episode is a good one. My guest is Jen Eugenio. She's the founder of a nonprofit company called Women in Vinyl. Its mission is empowering women in the vinyl community. They have a blog, a website, and a podcast. She also works for Gold Rush Vinyl, which is a vinyl pressing company. So Jen has been on the show before with her husband, Ray, but I wanted to get her to come on for her favorite album ever, an album that she's obsessed with, which is fair to say, and that's Master of Reality by Black Sabbath. She's going to talk about the different variants that exist, why she loves this album so much, and also we're going to talk about the vinyl community and some of the unfortunate stereotypes that uh, women still face, believe it or not, in the vinyl collecting world. So even though this is one of the first albums I discussed back in 2020, this is a different focus on it. So I hope you enjoy it because it's Black Sabbath and Master of Reality on this episode of the Broken Record Player Podcast. everyone welcome back to another episode i am joined once again by jen de eugenio did i get it right you did <laughs> sweet uh so jen is back jen is the founder of women in vinyl which is a nonprofit and a blog and also a podcast and the purpose of it is to empower women in the vinyl community and uh how long has the pod pa- podcast been going three years three or four years yeah about three years now awesome awesome and then you're also in the vinyl industry Yes. Yes. The uh, gold rush, <laughs> gold rush vinyl. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything in life is vinyl lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this album that we're talking about today, the reason I brought Jen on everybody is because she's kind of obsessed with with this album. Is that uh, is that fair? That's fair. Say? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you're in the vinyl community. You you have a podcast, a blog, you're a company. I mean, did I miss anything? Like what, what else do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I think you covered it. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, yeah. I run the nonprofit women in vinyl, um, vinyl collector for over two decades now, um, work in record pressing. So yeah, all the things. So what, before we get into master of reality, cause we have a lot to talk about with that. Could you just kind of explain what got you into vinyl collecting? Why why did it become a thing in the first place for you? Yeah, I mean, I my parents had records, so I was always aware of them. Uh, and I, you know, love the tactile nature of looking at the album art. I think a lot of collectors do. Being able to really have an experience with your music. Um, and so they were always something that were present in our house. But then when I was in high school, uh, there was a record store that we um, we went to called Dragon Song. And it was this dilapidated old house that had a record store in it and had walls of moldy oldies and this guy behind the counter that had tons of stories to tell. And so that was my first record store experience. And um, it was something that was just different and it had this feeling to it that I really loved. And so I bought my first records with my own money at that time. 
and then it kind of spiraled from there. Nice. Do you remember, do you have any recollection of what that album was? Um, it was Houses of the Holy, Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. What a great yeah. first album. Yeah. <laughs> I think mine, no, I know what mine is. Mine was two. It was um, Highway to Hell nice. and uh, Defenders of the Faith. So two classic hard rock yeah. metal albums. I was like, oh, I got to get these because I was just so excited to see them used on vinyl. It was like I had them on CD, but to get them on vinyl, it was like a whole nother thing, you know? Totally. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, vinyl wasn't the primary medium when I was in high school. It was CDs and tapes. And so, um, yeah, finding vinyl, you know, yourself as a teen and really kind of getting into it is an exciting new world. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember my parents had vinyl too, but the vinyl they had at the time, I didn't want. It was like, <laughs> what was it? It was like my mom had some ABBA records. Nothing wrong with ABBA, but at the time, a teenager. Sure. Exactly. Just wasn't feeling it, you know? Yeah. And then my dad, he got rid of all his like Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin albums. I have no idea why he sold them. And then the, his leftovers was like Steely Dan and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I was like, you know, again, as a teen, just not feeling that yacht rock stuff. Yeah. You know, just not into <laughs> yeah. it. And I was like, where's the Black Sabbath? Where's the Alice Cooper? Where's all that stuff you talked about owning? He's like, oh, I gave that up. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, now I have to go out and buy it all. But yeah, that's OK. That's OK. Um, before we get into the the album, though, I wanted to go back to women in vinyl and the vinyl community. So as a as a woman in the vinyl industry, a collector, what are some of the things that you've noticed when it comes to how women are treated within the community? Anything that have you have seen or felt um, as a woman in that kind of a community? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you bring it, it up because uh, we actually are talking on our podcast coming up in March about just this. And we have um, both a male and female perspective of people that are pretty well known within the Instagram, at least vinyl community. And, you know, the impetus with women in vinyl, I, so in 2018, the very beginning of 2018, I started working at Furnace Record Pressing in DC and it was sort of the dream job I never knew existed. And I realized really quickly, uh, you know, with Allie Miller, who's now the CEO, but at the time the VP, uh, you know, she was doing a lot to run the company and there were other women that I was talking to day to day that were running labels and other pressing plants. And I was just like, I need to start showcasing people that are doing these jobs because I never knew that they were around. And, you know, I didn't play an instrument. It wasn't something that I ever took to, um, even though I, you know, had friends and bands. And so I didn't know where my spot was in the industry. So I ended up going the creative route of art and design. Uh, and so that's when I started Women in Vinyl as a blog. Um, around the same time, there was this meme going around uh, where everybody knows it. If they're in the vinyl community, it's this 1950s couple. Um, the guy is holding a record and the woman is knitting. And he insert whatever speech bubble, but it's like he's nerding out about the record. And she is like, I don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like killing me because you know, normally that kind of stuff, I'm just like, whatever, but it, everybody was reposting it and like, oh yeah, I feel this. And I was the guy in the picture. Granted, both Ray and I are, 
you know, music nerds, we both love vinyl, but, you know, I have, as we're going to talk about, over 50 copies of <laughs> Master of Reality. So I'm that person that's <laughs> like, oh, look at this, like, thing. Um, so, you know, between those two things, um, you know, Women in Vinyl was sort of born. But, yeah, I mean, I've had everything from, you know, oh, you're posting your boyfriend, husband's collection or... Um, you don't deserve to listen to the cramps like you should die kinds of what? things <laughs> yeah. oh my god people are crazy and like for no reason i mean it's wild so wow. you know there's a lot of hate that comes along with the really awesome community that's there too and so i think exposing um those things and talking about them will help you know get rid of some of the trolls that make yeah. it a bad place yeah yeah, those tr the trolls are always going to be there. Mm -hmm. They they just don't go away for whatever reason. But um, that is crazy. You don't deserve to listen to the cramps. That is I that is so out there. Like, yeah, it's very it's, weird. <laughs> don't what is that person especially have against yeah. you and the cramps? Like <laughs> especially considering they're probably my second most collected like people on uh, on vinyl. So. I don't know. <laughs> well, that person should, should seek some help for sure. Because <laughs> the cramps are a pretty big band, dude. Right. I don't know if you're aware, but a lot of people like them. So <laughs> anyways, uh, well, that the meme that you were talking about, that's kind of the stereotype for anything uh, involving like nerd culture, or geek stuff, right? Like um, the stereotypical husband who's collecting like star wars toys and his wife who's like oh you you know you're spending too much money on those don't collect them you know they're they're stupid you know that kind of stereotype that is i think the the image people have or had of uh what collecting is like and mm -hmm. you know it's uh it's obviously bull you know yeah but uh that's just that's the image that has been i guess uh put out there for decades is the man is like geeking out over sports or, you know, or records or whatever. And the wife is like cooking or cleaning or knitting. Right. Yeah. But. It's so weird. It's such a like antiquated thing. And, you know, things that I've learned and we've talked to people about through women in vinyl are really interesting too, especially in vinyl culture. Um, we had Carolyn King who, uh, she was part of a book that was talking about gender bias, and she talked a lot about, um, you know, initially records were actually marketed towards women and record players and everything because they were the ones that were decorating the household. And so a lot of the technology and, and design that we see around vinyls actually was marketed towards women. And at some point along the way, um, typically I find through audiophile culture um, in particular that you know, women's understanding of how everything works somehow got lost. And, you know, this idea that, you know, men are superior thinkers or, you know, tinkerers or whatever has become, you know, more of the overview of vinyl and vinyl collecting. And it creates a huge barrier of entry for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good that social media has allowed for more people to 
get out there and show their collections and show that, hey, I'm not, you know, like I'm a person who collects as well, just like you. Um, so uh, hopefully that's done good things for for women in the community, like in the vinyl community. But it may have also like your story you just shared about the troll. It's also <laughs> comes with a lot of uh, problems as well. But yeah, and I think part of those are also some of the sexualization of women, you know, and their records. Um, right. And, you know, if if a woman feels that that's how she wants to express herself, that's fine. I mean, I think with women in vinyl, you know, we're kind of trying to stray away from that a little bit because we want to create a more role model dynamic. Um, and so we don't necessarily want to perpetuate that look. Um, but, you know, there's that um, vinyl collection Instagram account Yes. That, you know, they I mean, they've essentially taken away comments whenever they post the top 10 because there were so many hateful comments on the, you know, the top 10 being mostly women holding mm -hmm. records. But, you know, you also on the flip side of that, it's like, okay, well, if you don't if you don't like it, then it won't be the most liked thing. Right. Right. That's all they're doing is tallying the most liked. So sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and I mean, going back to that whole like you know, the, the sexualization of it, there have definitely, I've seen, you know, various uh, images of people posing with records and, you know, pretty, uh, I don't want to say like scandalous, that's not the right word, but it's been interesting to see some of the, the lengths people go to pose at their records. And personally, I hate posing with records. I, I would just rather take a photo of the record. Yeah. Like that's, that's the focus for me is the record, not me. Yeah. Like <laughs> and that's why I'm, that's why I'm almost all of mine are that way too. Yeah. And I I found that when I am trying to promote something if I am in it, I will get more likes. I don't know if that's a female thing or if that's generally people just like people. <laughs> yeah. But uh but it is something that's interesting to see. Um but I agree. I I've, I've always taken the stance of like if I'm posting my record, I want to talk about the record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and that kind of goes to my next question because you were, you did, I think, a poll. It was a while ago, maybe a couple months ago, just asking about the vinyl community on Instagram. And you asked something about, I think the question was, what's annoying or infuriating about the vinyl community? And people posted different answers. I think I responded. Mine was something along the lines of it feels like the vinyl community can sometimes just be kind of a, a giant pissing contest and uh that can get on my nerves a little bit because i i, str I struggle with social media as i'm sure everybody does at times um but there are days when i just don't really want to engage with it you know yeah. i just i just want to listen to my music that's it i don't care who knows i'm listening to music or what i just want to listen to it yeah i mean honestly that's been you know obviously anybody that follows my account knows that I had a bunch of big surgeries. And so that sort of set me back in posting a lot, but I have sort of pulled back in posting because it's been a lot of that. I mean, people will, uh, I'll post something and then it's like all of these things about, oh, well, do you have this one? And what about this? And, you know, or, oh, you know, you have 50 copies, but you don't have this one, like, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, or it becomes this competition. Mm -hmm. And that's not why I'm doing it i didn't right. go down this rabbit hole to 
have the most, right. <laughs> you know, that, that wasn't why this all started. And so, um, yeah, I just, I don't like that. And no. the cost of vinyl is going up so much that it's really hard and it makes it again, sort of gatekeepy if people can't afford and they feel like they have to do that. Keeping up with the Joneses type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vinyl has skyrocketed. It's made me mm -hmm. actually go back to CDs a little bit Yeah, because, you know, I, go to my record store here and I buy like three records and it's over a hundred dollars. Yeah. I'm just like, it, you know, I can't afford that. <laughs> yeah. The cost of materials has, have gone up a lot. And I think, yeah. you know, with that, they, you know, with COVID they haven't really come down and, uh, you know, a lot of things are getting like remastered and repressed and, you know, it is, it's becoming a lot harder where you used to go in to a record store and you could buy five records. And mm -hmm. now you go in and you're like, can I buy one? Right. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, you, yeah. Well, and we just talked to uh, the FAMS Coalition, who um, is work is a, a black record store coalition. And, you know, they were talking about within the community needing to be able to have people buy records and support the music that they want. Um, but a lot of times it's like, can I afford it? Is it this mm -hmm. or groceries? And so that's the kind of thing that we need to start figuring out is how we what we do to make vinyl more accessible again so that it doesn't go away yes because it i mean i remember and, and you remember of course being able to go to a record store and buying used vinyl for like yeah. five bucks mm -hmm. i mean the album we're going to talk about i bought for like four bucks used yeah. when i first mm -hmm. saw it that's impossible probably now to yeah. do oh um, my god yeah with sabbath in particular it's like it could be like a crappy copy and people are going to post it for 50 bucks just starting. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and used vinyl. Cause I, I used to love buying used vinyl. I could never afford new vinyl when I was younger. It was just too expensive mm -hmm. even back then. But um, being able to find the classics, like the, the Led Zeppelins, the Bowie's, the black Sabbaths for under $10 a piece was just, I was just a kid in a candy store. Yeah. And now it's like you, I go to the record store. Those albums are all minimum $20 used mm -hmm. in shit condition. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, I know what happened. The demand, of course, rose, you know, and everything. But I like to think there's a little price gouging maybe as well. I I mean, that might be in there too. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah I, I think the for me when it comes to the vinyl, like um, I'll, I'll go into the record store and, and there's a brand new vinyl for like $55. And I can't figure out why it's $55. And it's not a rare record either. It's a, it's a pretty standard album, but for some reason it's 55 and it's, it's one, it's uh two sided. And I just can't like, there are certain records that are priced so oddly I, I don't get it. Can you, what, what goes into the pricing besides just like the cost of materials? Like what else goes into that? You know, one of the things that we talk about with women in vinyl are all the hands that are involved. And so, you know, you have your, your cutting engineer who has to charge for lacquers. And now that, you know, lacquers are more scarce. If people are cutting to lacquer, then, you know, there's the charge for that. Um, and then it goes into electroplating and that's a whole process. Um, and then, yeah, cost of materials. Um, and then the record store has to take their markup. 
And so I think with the cost of everything has just risen as a whole. Um, I mean, even print, a lot of print cost hasn't come down again. And so especially with some of the remastered reissues they're doing, maybe fancier, fancier packaging. And um, when you're looking at things just like a die cut, for example, like a custom die could cost the artist $1,000 just for that custom die. And then on top of that, you know, maybe the special paper or whatever. So um, a lot of that, I think, is influencing the cost. And what we're seeing a lot with some of the reporting is this focus on the super fan. And hmm. so, um, you know, the super fan will buy whatever. They'll spend all the money. And like, yeah, sure. I mean, if there was like some special thing of Aussies in the box set, I would probably try to save up and buy it. But um, and so I, I think a lot of the marketing is is going towards that, too um because of all the statistics that we're seeing yeah that makes sense it's more than just the actual record itself the the booklet too right sure yeah mm -hmm. there was um like fiona apple's discography was remastered and put back mm -hmm. out and one of her albums title was like 45 bucks yep but i i was a sucker and i bought it me too okay <laughs> it's a great album yeah but but I was like, why is this 45, but her other ones are like 30 because mm -hmm. that stupid booklet. That's that's <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons. But it's just like that booklet, which is, I don't know, like 15 pages or something mm -hmm. was uh, one of the reasons the cost went up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of that kind of stuff uh, is a lot of added cost. Like, you know, for me, seeing it on the quoting side and how much some of these things can come in, especially at limited runs, um, it can get really expensive really fast yeah well let's get into the album that we're here to talk about how many how many copies do you have of this 50 you said 54 55 now wow yeah. that's impressive and they're all different I, right yeah they're all different wow <laughs> i didn't i didn't even realize they made that many different versions me either of... at first <laughs> <laughs> so what when you're um Okay, so we, when you got this album for the first time, um, well, maybe just maybe just go back to what the beginning with this album. What was it about this album that really grabbed your attention? And uh, was, and was this the first Sabbath album you ever heard? So I was a <clears throat> goth kid in high school, and I was into the the heavy stuff and you know, scaring my parents with some of the things I was bringing home because I did previously go to Catholic school and I was raised Catholic. And um, so, but I, I've always been into like dark, weird stuff. I collect Ouija boards. Like it's just, I've always liked the odd and macabre. And, you know, a lot of the other things at the time were like Tool um, and, you know, the things in that genre. And, you know, Black Sabbath, being that Led Zeppelin was one of the first records that I bought, I was already into the hard rock, heavier scene. Um, and listening to Black Sabbath, I was immediately struck by them. Um, Paranoid was actually the first one that I heard. And I will say that the top, the top, my top three are self-titled Paranoid and Master of Reality. I just think those are perfect records. Mm -hmm. um, but master of reality to me is just perfect from start to finish there's not anything that's filler there's nothing that could be removed um or added i think to make it a better record and 
So I had it in my collection. I just had a Warner Brothers, just like everybody else. I probably found it at Salvation Army for 10 bucks, you know, and uh, it was part of my collection. So uh, when I met Ray, he was working in a record store and they got in a Vertigo uh, version of it was a German Vertigo version first pressing and I bought it and I'm like, this is different. It's different than the one that I have. And so I started kind of researching it more and realizing there was a ton of different releases. And as I started working in record pressing, it kind of <laughs> spiraled out of control because I was like, well, how, you know, like, how did this happen? Because like, if someone wants to press a record now, I'm like, do you have the masters? Do you have the rights? How, like we have, are we going to have to get a recut? Like there's so many questions. And so when I'm like, when I see this record was released billions of times, I'm like, how did that even happen? And so that sort of set me on this journey. <laughs> right on. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I can totally relate to all that because I grew up in a religious household as well. And my goal was always to scare my family too. So, um, you know, I know, I know he's going through some stuff right now, so I don't really want to promote him, but I had this big poster of Marilyn Manson in my room and my mom hated it. She oh absolutely hated it. Yep. You know, when, yeah, like when, um, antichrist superstar and same thing, I, I kind of uh, skirted around it because yeah, same thing. But, uh, I, I was a Manson fan and I was hiding his CDs like under my bed <laughs> because they were like totally freaked mm -hmm. out by that. Yeah. But any yeah. of that stuff, you know, Rob Zombie. Yep. Um, Ozzy, of course. Yeah. All that stuff. It was, it was, you know, I was drawn to that. And, and so, yeah, Black Sabbath, I was told were, you know, everyone threw out the rumor that they were Satanists and all that. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's cool. <laughs> you know people were like you shouldn't listen to them. they're satanists i'm like really that makes me want to listen to them even more you know why'd you tell me that um and then you find out they're not and it's right a it's a little disappointing but, <laughs> yeah uh, and it's funny because like i know that you're into the horror culture as well um i mean frankenstein's behind you you know um yeah. <laughs> and uh and so am I. And I think Sabbath fits in um, really well with that. I mean, Boris Karloff, Black Sabbath is essentially right. how they got their name. So, um, yeah. you know, it fits in well. It's like, you know, an easy, an easy thing if you're into both. Exactly. I mean, Oz, it's funny how a lot of what they did was accidental. Mm -hmm. But there, when you ask them, because I've heard Ozzy say before, it might have been Ozzy or geezer but that yeah black sabbath the movie inspired them but then i heard ozzy say well we just can't we just like the name <laughs> and i'm like well okay but you know they sometimes they try to downplay the association with the occult and all that but then other times it's like they kind of promote it so it's kind of funny that balance of like let's not promote it too much but then let's kind of wink a bit you know i yeah. love that about bands and artists and how they don't want to give all their cards away you know, they mm -hmm. want to show their hand. Yeah, because I think it's in the Ozzy book where he talks about they were walking past like Black Sabbath or some other horror movie had just come out and they were walking down the street and they saw this line of people and they were just like, man, this this genre really draws people and like has this mystery about it. And so maybe we could do something with that, you know, and then, you know, change the name from Earth to to Black Sabbath. 
Right. I'm really glad they changed the name. Yes. Like there, there's a band, <laughs> you you know, that band Earth, I'm sure. Right. Mm-hmm. They're good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Black Sabbath is such a better name, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's one of the best band names probably ever. Yeah, totally like, agree. And, um, you know, it, and it kind of adds to the whole mystery and the the mystery of this album. If you look at the album cover, it's it's an interesting cover. I mean, there's not much going on in terms of like what, you know, there's there's not like a creepy looking person like their first album. Mm-hmm. There's not like a weird guy with a sword and a shield. And a, <laughs> I don't know what was going on in that second album cover, but they don't have that. It's just font. Mm-hmm. But which is, yeah. To me, it, part of the perfection of it. Yeah. Right. But I think it's their best. I mean, it's their best album cover mm-hmm. because it's not it's not too much, but it's also it's just it's just right. Yeah. And, and so many people have ripped it off. Yes. Especially <laughs> in the stoner doom community. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people have ripped it off and mm-hmm. a lot of people have ripped this band off uh, yeah. <laughs> to this day. But um what are so you have a lot of copies of this obviously what's do you have any like weird looking copies of this like what's the weirdest color combination that you've found well as far as covers so there's um there's a bunch so the and there's reasons so the um brazilian version is one of the more interesting ones that's the one where they took black sabbath and they completely rainbow fight it really um i I pulled some things so people okay. won't be able to see them, but we could always like link to um, Mistress of Reality in the yes notes. Um, so yeah, this is the oh wow, that's the Brazilian version. So it's got <laughs> a, a rainbow of colors, and they did this because the the regular cover was too drab for the Brazilian market, and so they thought this would sell more records because <laughs> the initial record was uk and it was on vertigo mm-hmm. um which is just perfect in my opinion um and that one was sold in a box sleeve uh with the poster and everything and so that was sort of the the first iteration yeah um and then like there are covers like these um there's these ones that are well so there's a ton of bootlegs that came out because um during the vietnam war um you know, soldiers needed music, wanted music. And so a lot of the records were bootlegged there with all of these crazy covers that were essentially Xeroxes of the cover. So they came in all kinds of different weird versions. So like this is like a Taiwanese version. And so for people, for people listening, it's like a really white, almost teal background and black Sabbath is in purple. And then master of reality is in green. That's really interesting looking. Yeah, and so this one was um, pressed in Taiwan, um, and it was you know a wartime version of the record, and so that was one of the holy grails to try to find because it was really it's really hard to find one of these. Um, yeah, how do you so, yeah. are you scouring the internet looking for them, or how do you find them? Yeah, uh, eBay, Discogs, yeah. Um, and then you know one awesome plus about the vinyl community is friends all over the place that you know they're out looking for records and they see something and send me a picture um nate from vinyl guide he uh he's like been one of my best scouts (laughs) we've become great friends and uh 
Yeah, he'll be out digging in Australia and be like, hey, do you have this one? <laughs> wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, well, lots of so, enablers. Yeah. <laughs> What's the so the original cover is uh, Black Sabbath and purple. Mm -hmm. Is Master of Reality in gray or is it not in any color? It's not in any color. It's okay. just embossed. Yeah. And That's it right. actually the, yeah, the jacket itself has like a little envelope open to it. Um, so, and then, yeah, that one came with the original poster and it's like, as you go down this rabbit hole, like I've seen people try to like make fake posters, make fake obies. Um, and so, yeah, trying to find the, the real thing, um, can also be difficult and, mm -hmm. People will just price gouge. Like I finally got um, this one behind me, which is my like was my holy grail. It's from Japan, and the Japanese version is a black cover with all white text, oh, wow. um, which, which also was a marketing thing. Um, and this original green obi is the first iteration of that, and um, those are thought to be one of the best sounding ones because. There was like an oil embargo going on at the time. And so uh, those were all like virgin vinyl in Japan, kind of like freshly pressed. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And the inserts all in Japanese. So what's the uh, is there a version that you're really just dying to get? Oh, at this point, probably just more of some of the weird bootlegs. Um just to kind of dive more into those because something I find fascinating is how they were able to make them, you know, like where they got the metal from, how they got it. Um, were they like ripping it from a record, which in a lot of cases I think is what they did. Um, there's a few unofficial copies that have the actual um, like dead wax etchings from like Warner brothers pressings and stuff. But the, um, but a lot of them, I think they ripped direct from just another record. Like the, um, I don't know if I have one here, but there's these, this one? there's these like chalkboard covered ones. So one of it's just oh, all green. Yeah. Um, but you can like faintly see. Yeah, I can Black barely Sabbath in see there. it. Wow. And something crazy about this one is um, the fact that. So like the Korean tax stamps are still on it. I'm not sure if you can see it. Um, it's hard to see. Yeah, it's I'll a little hard. I'll to have see. to send you a picture, but it's yeah. an actual stamp that's still on the label from when it was like imported, exported. And then these uh, these labels are really cool to me because you know working in record pressing, a lot of people think the labels are stickers but they're not. They're actual pieces of paper that we have to bake so, to remove moisture and then they go into the press. Oh, wow. And and so these bootlegs, in order to get them to soldiers and not have to create art, it's literally just the same blank label that someone like used a typewriter and typed out like Black Sabbath and the lyrics or and the tracks. So some of them will be like Lion Man instead of Iron Man on <laughs> volume four. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. It. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of fun like Easter egg type things with these. Any cool like um in some of the variants, do you get like any cool merch or any extra stuff that you don't find in other versions, like any rare stuff that just you 
like because one time I opened a Kiss record and a bunch of cool stickers fell out. And I was like, well, that's cool. And that was probably in the original version. But anything like that that you find? I haven't found much like, uh, you know, hidden gems in the record that maybe were someone else's. Um, well, actually, one of the ones that I do still want to get is the U.S. promo with the actual time strip on the front. Um, I have that the promo version, but not with the the time strip on the front. But that would be a cool one to have. It's sort of an extra thing. That's awesome. Uh, see, so much goes into it. So much goes into the collecting, and I don't like. I am. Um, I'm a. I, I don't think I could afford to do that like that would dri- that would drive me crazy trying to find uh all those different ones like i i'm kind of content to just buy the record you know i'm one of those like i i own the record now i'm good i'll go crazy if i try to find all of these like i mean you it must have been it must be a lot of work to track <laughs> yeah. all that down right so yeah i mean and this is the only one that i really do this yeah. for i mean well Black Sabbath in general, like this whole top row is all Black Sabbath. Um, so I've got extra copies of the first four. Um, well, five Sabbath, bloody Sabbath too. But um, but Master of Reality is the one that I really kind of dove into. And I started the Instagram account, account Mistress of Reality to share this weird information with anybody else that's interested <laughs> in it. <laughs> well, I'm... It seems a lot of people are interested in it. So, I yeah, mean, I've had people be like, "Are you going to start back up again?" And I'm like, "Yes, but there's a lot of work involved." Oh yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's go back to the cover itself. Um, we talked about how it was perfect. Why why do you think that the Black Sabbath Master of Reality album cover is is perfect? What does it do for you when you look at it? Well, I uh, am a designer first. Um, that's what I went to school for. That's what I did before I got into this industry. I was a um, textile designer. And so typography is like something that I could nerd out on at any any time. And I think that just a simplistic, powerful typeface is like perfection. It's simple, it's clean, and it's noticeable. And so for me, I just think that that is awesome as it is and it lended itself to a lot of other like kind of cool things that we just talked about cover wise yeah i mean what i remember what i remember about i'm looking at it now um first looking at it it just gave it had this weird sort of uh mysterious almost like you were looking at smoky font i mean i think that's what they were trying to do was create this like foggy looking smoky type of font and it just looked really not creepy but there was an eeriness to it that i couldn't really explain i just looked at this black cover with black sabbath in these in this really cool font and it was kind of hypnotic it would i mean i like i like the first album cover a lot I think that's a really cool image, but yeah. this, this was just really like, you don't really know what's, it, it's one of those album covers that you want to know more about. Like, you're just like, okay, now I want to listen to the record because this album cover looks kind of spooky. Yeah. Especially with the actual title being just embossed, it gives that kind of extra, like you initially look at it cause it's black Sabbath and then you're like, oh, master of reality. Well, what's this? It creates kind of like a mystery. Yeah. 
got this really cool just mystery vibe and then when you start to learn more about the guys in the band then you're like oh maybe it's like a weed reference you know <laughs> right. like maybe it's weed that's smoke you know um i mean and the first song is obviously a big nod to that but mm-hmm. um yeah so many bands have ripped this off and uh you know good bands too not not like uh those bands don't deserve praise but but you know this album in particular i know the first two get credited with kind of inventing heavy metal but this one like created subgenres of heavy metal yeah which is and my insane. favorite subgenres of heavy right. metal yeah right and and i yeah i tend to also gravitate more towards the slower heavier 100%. stuff right yeah. i'm i'm a fan of faster stuff but there's something about playing a really slow heavy riff that's just really fun Oh yeah. And and it sounds great. Like yeah. the virtuosity stuff, I can get kind of lost when it comes to that cuz it's just too fast, it's too intricate. I'm just like, you know, that's cool and everything. I props to those musicians, but I can't I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't actually do a whole lot for me. Yeah, 100%. You know? Yeah, I I always tell people the kind of metal that you think I like is not actually what I like. For me, as far as like fast metal goes it's like motorhead but like yes besides that you know really it's low and slow everything yeah. yeah so who who would you say are the bands that we love but they did clearly rip off black sabbath can you think of think of some that you can name i mean i think you know i don't want to say they ripped them off but i think okay. sleep is one of the yeah you know like sleep um caius but then you hear, you know, Smashing Pumpkins and Billy Corgan. I mean, I love the Smashing Pumpkins. They're one of my favorite bands. And, you know, he talks about how he believes that they kind of started grunge with this record, too. So I oh, think wow. that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. Actually, that's 100% true because Soundgarden clearly inspired mm-hmm. by Black Sabbath. Yeah. And yeah, Soundgarden is, you know, I never got to see them. I'm going to cry because I didn't get to see them. <laughs> but um one of my favorite bands and you could totally hear the influence yeah and 100%. so and melvin's and all that stuff so yeah definitely grunge was was definitely inspired by this and i think it was interesting um you know i listened to your other episode about this record and you were talking about how it's sort of groovy and how a lot of their inspiration did come from i mean ozzy loved the beatles right and like right. a lot of the music that they loved was like blues related mm-hmm. you know they had that polka Tolk, or I think it was called like initially, like Geezer and Ozzy had yeah. that really weird like band first, which was a blues band. Um, and so I think that was really interesting. And and if you take that spin on it, then someone like Uncle Acid, I think, is a good example, who's another one of my favorite bands, uh, more recent. And I mean, they're super heavy and mm-hmm. also really groovy. And I love yes. that about them. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bands were were inspired by that groovy slow heavy riff sound that that sabbath got and then like ozzy as a vocalist you know i know that a lot of people think of sabbath as you know tony's thing Mm -hmm. which i get it you know he was the only one who was there for everything but yeah (laughs) um but ozzy's vocals i mean you can definitely hear the influence too right on on these bands because a lot of that doom stoner stuff the vocals at least you know the early doom stuff they they got a little bit more growly later on i think but yeah 
there was like a wailing sort of higher pitch sound to a lot of the vocals, right? Which is what Ozzy was doing. Hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah. I mean. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm a, a I'm an Ozzy Sabbath person for sure, and I yeah. I some I sometimes get some people dogging on me for that, but I, it, to me that's Black Sabbath. So. Yeah. yeah. People dog on you for that. Oh yeah. Really. There's there a lot of people get really mad that I'm a Sabbath Aussie person. I, I just don't think that it's uh, it's it's not Black Sabbath to me once Dio's in it. Mm-hmm. And I I like Dio. I like yeah. Dio as Dio. Um, to me, with Tony being such a front man, just as a musician, um, who's not a who's not singing, and then you have Dio, who's such a showman. I feel like the two of them is just like a a big production. You know, it's mm-hmm. not. It's not to me these guys that really just started from humble beginnings and created something that's like so iconic unintentionally, yeah. you know? Yeah. The un- it doesn't sound the same. No, it doesn't. And and like I I never got into the I got into the Dio stuff, but I never really got into anything post Dio. Yeah. Um it's like that Born Again album, people are like, "Oh, that's a really good album." And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not I'm not into it. Like it's fine. It's not bad or anything, but I just I don't own it. I don't really I've passed up on owning it many times. I, I'll find it at record stores and I'm like if it was 5 bucks, sure. But I'm not spending 40 bucks on it, 30 bucks. So I right. I I leave that one alone. Um but I yeah, the Dio stuff's fine, but it is a different band. It mm-hmm. totally is. Yeah. And you know, I yeah, I like Dio too. I just don't think it's Black Sabbath. So I agree. But yeah. it's weird that people would be upset about that because, I mean, I, I understand people have preferences, but I mean, Black Sabbath was started with these four. Their first five or six albums. Wait, five? Yeah, five. Because number six is. When we get into like Never Say Die and Technical right. Ecstasy, it's like. It's like, eh, but <laughs> like, yeah, okay. I don't know what's going on with the technical ecstasy album cover, but whatever, <laughs> you know, there's a couple songs that are good on there, but um, those first few albums are what people know black mm-hmm. Sabbath as. So it's kind of weird that someone would be upset that you only like those original albums, but Hey, Oh yeah. Yeah. People are like, what about Tony Martin years? What about headless cross? And I'm just always like, okay, <laughs> like, sure. Whatever. <laughs> But Actually, um, because have, I mean, what what's his um, what's his name from Deep Purple, who was their uh, lead singer for Ian Gillen? Ian um, Gillen, yeah. Even him for a minute, he was like, you know, I was the worst lead that Black Sabbath had. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> I've heard those stories about him, and yeah, apparently he was doing some crazy shit while they were recording. But <laughs> so maybe he meant that way, and in yeah. that way, I'd agree. But. But the album itself, let's just kind of talk a little bit about it and and just the songs, if if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, this is their third one, came out in 1971, and I can't believe how quickly bands could produce albums back then. It was just like they kept turning them out yeah. one after another. And I guess a lot of that has to do with being on the road and recording on the road. But, I mean, this comes out right after Paranoid a year later. Mm-hmm. And it's totally different, though. It's heavier. There's no, I mean, like you said, there's no filler. There's, I mean, 
I guess people may look at the instrumentals as a little filler, but can you speak on the instrumentals a little bit? Like, why are they necessary? I've heard people defend them and say, well, they're necessary for this reason. But what do you think of those little instrumentals between some of the songs? I, I mean, I personally love them. Every time I get a new copy, I actually play Embryo as the first one because, um, or Orchid. I just think it's interesting to hear that as far as hearing the quality of the record itself. Um, but I think it's nice to have a little bit of, um, not a break, but just like reprieve and mm -hmm. before you get into the next heavy thing. I think if it was like heavy, 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 you would just be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So especially with something like Children of the Grave, where it's like it hits hard. And yeah. then to flip the record and start with like something chill, I think is perfect. And if we are, you know, if they were stoned through making this whole record and can't remember it and whatever, then like if you've been stoned, you probably know you sometimes want something that's a little more out there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like space rock, right? So Yeah. Yeah, which, you know, you mentioned Caius earlier and they did stuff like that too, right? Where it's like they would have a heavy song, something a little chill, back to the heavy, and it has a nice balance. It also kind of trips you up a bit because you're not expecting what comes next, right? You get this nice little break and then suddenly you're back to this like crunching heavy mm -hmm. song. And so that was really cool that Sabbath did that on this album. They've done it. They did it on the next one a little bit too um volume well, four but and interestingly too you know the real down-tuned tracks on this record are into the void lord of this world and children of the grave and before or between each one of those is a more instrumental or calm song where you have lord of this world and then into solitude right so that's kind of interesting too yeah solitude is such a beautiful i love but... it that and planet caravan are just oh like, yeah Planet yeah. Caravan's amazing. Planet Caravan is such a, you just get lost in that trance, yeah. you know, that's oh, it's so uh, good. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Different record though, but yeah. different record, different <laughs> record. But it's interesting that this whole, like getting heavier and heavier was kind of accidental in a way. Mm -hmm. Cause I read somewhere that Tony did it cause it, his fingers were hurting. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it was such a logical thing. You know, my fingers hurt. I'm going to, we're going to tune down even more so the strings are easier to play. And then it just creates this whole nother thing. Yeah. You know, and they've, and they've talked about how they had more time on this one too. It was, they felt like it was their most um, kind of experimental time because with, you know, both self titled and paranoid, they're both released in 1970. And yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, which I'm pretty sure I read that Paranoid was like already recorded, but still, I mean, it's back to back. Um, yeah. And like with this one, they had more time to think about stuff and and work stuff out. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they were really prepared for that. Uh, being able to actually spend time on an album like mm -hmm. this. So they kind of were able to goof around a bit and yeah. experiment. So, but this this always gets me when you look back on what critics thought at the time and i always love to talk shit about rolling stone for some reason it's just an easy target <laughs> but they gave it three stars and they said it was monotonous hardly an improvement over its predecessor 
I'm just like, what were you listening to? Yeah, Rolling Stone, I, I'm i with you. Like, honestly, especially after uh, the, the sort of side tangent, but when um, Taylor Hawkins died and they basically wrote a piece saying that Dave Grohl was the reason he died, I was like, I will never read that publication again. They wrote that? Yeah, basically oh they were God. like, they were basically like, oh yeah, you know, Dave tore him into the ground. He said that he wanted to, he needed a break and he never got it. And so basically alluding to that and i was just like wow that's really messed up <laughs> that's insanely <laughs> so, messed up my yeah. god well there's a reason i never read them yeah and, and you just added to that reason <laughs> but wow that okay well and then on top of that just how they treated led zeppelin mm -hmm. just ridiculous like I, they didn't even like their first four albums <laughs> like, i was like how could you not like any of those albums that's anyways we can yeah. talk shit about rolling stone probably for an hour <laughs> but well I, I think you know this is a good time too to talk about how the u.s version um initially was so different um as far as tracks and so oh. um something interesting that you'll find in and if you have a first press u.s edition it will have additional tracks listed um and you know the runtime of this record is like 34 minutes and change you can fit 22 minutes of music per side on your record so theoretically this is like could be an ep almost and so when it was coming to the american audience there was uh like different um contract obligations for to make it quote longer to appeal to that audience and so they added these extra tracks to make it look like it was longer, but it's actually just intros and outros of songs. And oh, so wow. I was looking at the copy before this just to see, and there's actually sort of track markers on the record too, which is really interesting for those. So like after children of the grave, there's the haunting, which is like a 45 second bit of children of the grave. And it's that part that sounds like a horror movie, like Friday the 13th. Mm hmm. Yeah, okay. And so I was listening to it and I was like, you know, having just listened to the other episode, I was like, it's weird that it's called The Haunting. I was like, you planted the seed that now I need to try to research because I'm like, wait, though, did they? Because it's called The Haunting and then it's used almost exactly. Yeah, in a horror movie. Yeah, I I wondered that. So because when I listened to this album for the first time, I had seen the Friday the 13th movies. I was a big fan of those. And that iconic music with like, you know, that creepy whispering in the background. Mm -hmm. I heard when I heard that on Black Sabbath, I just kind of like shot up and I was like, wait a minute. I've heard that before. <laughs> like, I, it's almost identical. It's yes. Yeah. It's, so I'm I just wonder, like, if that person I, I don't remember who made the Friday the 13th movies, but they had to have been inspired. Yeah, because I just don't know where that would have come from. <laughs> yeah, but it's wild. I also but, yeah. don't know where Sabbath got the idea for that because it was really creepy. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a creepy way to end the yeah. side. Yeah, I mean, aren't they just whispering children of the grave? I think that's what they're whispering, maybe. I'm not sure, actually. I need to pay attention to it more, maybe next time I put it on. But it sounded when I last time I listened to it, it sounded like it might be children of the grave just being whispered by somebody. Yeah. But it's very haunting. Mm -hmm. 
So all these songs, there's not a bad song on this album. Let's just get that out of the way. Not right. a single bad song. I'm just going to run through the name them. I'll just name them. Then we can talk about any of them that we want to. Sweet Leaf, After Forever, Embryo, Children of the Grave, Orchid, Lord of This World, Solitude, Into the Void. It's not that many tracks. So yeah, you're right. It could be basically an EP. Yeah. What's the standout for you? Like when when you put this album on, what's what's the one you most look forward to? I love Children of the Grave. Um Into the Void. I mean Lord of This World. Those three are probably my top top three. Um, but then again, yeah, I think Orchid is a beautiful instrumental. So it's like it's kind of like I guess for you, it like picking a child. Yeah. Like which it's one's very your favorite hard. kid? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Into the Void has got to be my favorite. It, the riff, is probably my favorite riff that Sabbath ever did, and I love Ozzy's singing on it. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's. I guess it was difficult for him too because he had to do it really quickly. Yeah. Because he is singing at a at a pretty fast pace on that that song, but I just love how. I guess I shouldn't say how relevant it is because it's not really good to be relevant in this case, but (laughs) it is a relevant song and it's just got this, that killer riff that I love. I learned it on guitar part of it. I still need to learn the rest of it. Um, It's so much fun to play. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, it's just a really killer riff that. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to even it is hard to choose because they're all just so good in their own way it's funny because i think sweet leaf is a lot of people's favorite and that's not my favorite on here i mean it's good but it's just to me it's a a, one of the more basic sounding songs Mm -hmm. um not that anything sabbath did was basic but you know what i mean like it's when you're comparing it to some of the others that are a little more complex like you know ozzy having to sing quicker and get into the void right which i think iomi said was like one of the most difficult songs that they had to record yeah. yeah um yeah and then like lyrically like lord of this world is super interesting um and then children yes. of the grave like super upbeat so yeah i mean yeah lord of this pick? world is um incredibly heavy in both the lyrical way and the and just the sound of it, it's it's borderline sludge, mm-hmm. right? It, it's that guitar on there is so dirty. And when Ozzy is just kind of singing about how everyone has sold their soul, it's just I love it. It's and I wonder who he's picking at. I think he's probably pointing at the record producers or not producers, but the record executives, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. And, you know, like. I don't know. I think Geezer's like an amazing lyricist. And I think, you know, people don't really talk about Sabbath lyrics that much, but I think there's a lot in them. Um, oh, if yeah. you really kind of look at them and break them down. Well, and it kind of goes back to them being called Satanists and how mm-hmm. it's kind of ironic considering that Geezer was Catholic. Yeah. And he even said that many times. And if you listen to After Forever, which is a really cool song and a different song compared to the rest of them. They kind of bring that up, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, we're uh, basically saying like, oh, you should 
maybe believe in what you, you know, your God or Jesus, because he's actually better than you, you know, that kind of lyrical stuff, which mm -hmm. is pretty impressive. It's like, it's, th there's a lot of thought that went into it. Yeah. It's 100%. not, it's not just heavy metal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and but I yeah. think that's the thing too, with a lot of heavy metal, it gets a bad rap, but I mean, isn't it the same? I know Slayer's drama in the news right now, but like, you know, aren't they also like raised Catholic? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting. I think when you are raised that way, it, because you're so ingrained in this certain thing, uh, it makes you want to explore the other side of things, you know, because you're just like, well, what, what's all of this? Why do people feel this way? What is, you know, this mystery behind it? And so I think that's why a lot of times metal bands get a bad rap, but actually a lot of them do come from these sort of backgrounds. Yeah. And, and they have, um, you know, I understand that darkness sells and, you know, Satan sells, but I, I think that they're using it to a degree to, you know, this might sound really weird, but to send a positive message because um, these songs are positive, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, there's nothing negative about any of these songs as far as I can tell. No. So, I mean, they're, they're not just a collection of songs, but they are, they're saying something right. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of to end here, what way do you think listening to this album has, this is, this is going to be maybe a, a, a big question. So I'm <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot, but how what way is listening to this album contributed to your own personal growth or understanding of music? Hmm. Well, I mean, I do think that it was sort of the gateway to a lot of other genres that I really love because if someone is inspired by Sabbath and this is essentially a perfect record to me, then it creates that avenue of like, you know, we're all used to streaming and, netflix and whatever and so it's like things you may like so it's like you know if you like this here's something you may like um and i think you know from a music standpoint i think that it's that it's it's helped me find a lot of other bands that i really love i mean again like uncle acid sleep elder like there's so many great musicians that have kind of come from the birth of of the genres that they've created and then you know on a educational and work side for me it's really kind of continued this learning process of something that you wouldn't really be taught in the industry because it's just like learning how things were made in a time when records were completely different than what they are now and so i think that that has also been a really interesting kind of thing that this record has given me awesome yeah same same in terms of like in getting me into new types of music like um sleep was one of them electric wizard mm -hmm. stuff like that you know and and um just being able to appreciate the heavier slower stuff and and not like because you know when i was younger too i liked the fast stuff like the just heavy heavy metal like play as fast as you can and this kind of helped me kind of slow it down a bit and really appreciate that darker dirtier yeah heavier stuff so awesome well i noticed you have a jar behind you that says black sabbath fund i just saw that <laughs> um, you just, i just saw that just now what is that 
somewhat some wonderful person um on instagram found saw that somewhere and sent it to me <laughs> that's cool right on yeah I don't have much change in it now, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Well, Jen, thanks for coming back. Yeah, this was so fun. Thank you for having me. Guys, check out uh, Women in Vinyl. Check out Jen on Instagram. Check out the podcast. There's a blog. And uh, if you want to contribute, you can. There's ways to do that. So we will see you next time on the Broken Record Player Podcast. (laughs) 